Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Levi Roach about his book titled Empires of the Normans, Makers of Europe, Conquerors of Asia, out just recently in 2022 from John Murray. Um, This is a really interesting book because it looks at something that maybe we think we know a lot about, or at least in the UK, we think we know a lot about the Normans, um, but really extends our picture of where the Normans were, what were they doing um, over a much larger geographical and um, temporal uh, space, I think, than perhaps some of us are used to thinking about. So um, really interested and looking forward to this conversation um, and pleased to welcome you Levi to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Could you start us off please by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yes happily so as you mentioned I'm Levi Roach and I'm um, presently associate professor at the University of Exeter. My background lies in the study of medieval history in some respects quite broadly but my original research actually lay in England in the pre-conquest, i.e. pre-Norman period. But what drew me to want to write a book like this, and particularly a, a more popular book like this about the Normans, was precisely that point you were just making, which is that the Normans loom quite large in public consciousness in the British Isles, but very much as a force that comes over, conquers England in 1066. And that's kind of it. That's what they do. And that's their story. And there's a lot more to them. They are really a pan-European phenomenon, a phenomenon that even goes beyond Europe into the Middle East, into North Africa. So I wanted to really point out that these were all parts actually of the same story, that the Normans aren't just a kind of Northern French or or British phenomenon, um, but that they were very active and really shaping uh, politics and society in the Mediterranean, in North Africa, in the Middle East. I also wanted to, even within Britain and Ireland, point out that they weren't solely an English phenomenon, which they all too easily get painted as here as well, as a kind of force that comes over and conquers England in 1066. And again, that's kind of it. But that actually, within less than a generation of the conquest of England, they're making major inroads into Wales, they completely transform Scotland. And at a slightly later date, they do much the same with Ireland. So that there are all of these other pieces to the Norman story that aren't normally told, particularly not to a wider audience. Well, that's exactly why I was interested in the book. So I'm glad that I at least had some idea of kind of what was motivating you um, to write this. And I think um, it does fill exactly that gap and kind of takes a known thing and goes, well, actually, let's let's extend that. Let's pull that apart a little bit. And hopefully we'll be able to do that a bit in the interview, though obviously, unfortunately, not in the same amount of amazing detail as the book. So there are definitely going to be some stories that we probably will point listeners to um, for the full set of details if they want to read about them. Um, But to start us off, I do kind of want to start in the more familiar Um, place, at least again for British listeners, um, which is of course Normandy, the sort of bit of France now that's uh, named after them. And help us understand a little bit um, kind of how how does Normandy kind of end up, start off being Normandy? Um, Because of course, the Normans are originally Vikings. Um, And although by the time of the conquest, we think of them quite often as like, you know, super established and been there for ages and like a big power. But you remind us in the book that that's not super true. Um, (laughs) Normandy is a much more newer development than maybe we think of. So can you tell us about how Vikings sort of end up with a bunch of land on the coast of what we now think of as France? Yes, absolutely. So as you say, the key thing to start off with is that the Normans in origin are Vikings, or as contemporaries, Uh, we're calling them often Northmen. That's where we get the term um, Norman. And indeed, Normandy originally is simply Northmandy, i.e. the land of the Northmen. It, It, in its original form, could in fact refer to any territories held by Vikings. And so we end up in this situation where we have a kind of Viking enclave in northern France within a wider context of the kind of Viking phenomenon that I'm sure many of your listeners know at least a little bit about, i.e. these attacks from Scandinavia on mainland Europe that start in earnest in the early 9th century. By the time Normandy itself is settled, we're 
talking now about 9-11, so the early 10th century, these kinds of attacks have been going on for over a century. And what happens to create Normandy is something that's actually happened many times before. That is a ruler um, based on mainland Europe offers tracts of land to a Norman group that's been attacking their kingdom in exchange for loyalty, conversion, and future support against other Viking groups. And the principle behind this is a kind of classic set a thief to catch a thief or turning a a poacher into a gameskeeper, i.e. who better to defend your shores than from Vikings than Vikings themselves. And so what you're doing with this normally is you're taking a bit of land, normally coastal land, exposed already to Viking attacks. You're giving it to a Viking group in the hope that they'll then defend it against other Viking groups. The degree of success in these kinds of arrangements varied significantly, but in the short term, they often were actually quite successful, not least since you got rid of an immediate foe simply by offering them some land. And you were typically offering land that was under threat already, so perhaps not fully under your control or at least um, uh, under a degree of threat. So this is a kind of common response we've seen starting already in the kind of 820s, 830s. So by 911 or around 911, when this is done by uh, the French uh, King Charles the Simple, it's nothing new. He's simply executing uh, a a kind of uh, a plan and an approach that had been used successfully by many of his predecessors. What hasn't been done is specifically using the lands he gives to this Viking groups that are on the north reaches of the Seine um, within what becomes later Normandy. He doesn't grant all of what becomes Normandy all at once. It's only a part kind of around Rouen um, up to the coast. The reason why he uses those lands is probably twofold. So earlier on, they've tended to give out parts of the low countries, for example, like Flanders, parts of Flanders and things to um, Viking groups. The reason why he chooses this specific area seems to be number one, that the Viking group he's been having difficulties with have been based there already. So in a sense, they're already controlling parts of this land. And number two, it's territory that actually happens to be under the control of a chap called Robert of Neustria, who's the leading magnate within the kingdom, but often a rival rather than a supporter of the king, Charles the Simple. So it's also a kind of subtle way in terms of internal politics of gaining a new counterweight against a potential political rival. And indeed, in later years, uh, uh, the early Normans, i.e. this Viking group on the Seine, the Northmen of the Seine, support him at a number of crucial junctures against his political opponents. I like the the idea of kind of set, using a thief to catch another one. Um, in a lot of ways, we don't think of that as being a reason for like the creation of political entities. Um, and yet that does really neatly sort of sum up a lot of the dynamics that were happening here. Um, But one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is obviously the title is Empire of the Normans. And so there's an assumption kind of that therefore um, this heritage of being Northmen, of being Vikings is kind of something that doesn't change. It's this immutable idea that, oh yeah, they're just Vikings by a different name. And one thing I really like about the book is that you sort of pick that apart and are like, well, actually, hang on a second. Like, how does this change over time? Because no identity is sort of fixed in stone. And as Normandy then develops into the political entity that eventually does um, invade England um, and other parts of the British Isles, to what extent was this thing that was being created and evolving different from neighbouring territories? To what extent was it still useful to think of it as Viking in some way? So I think... One of the key elements of the Normans is their origin legend for them. So they're very keenly aware that they've come over and settled Normandy um, and given their name to this territory. And this is, I should say, an awareness that almost certainly transcends those who are of literal Viking stock. So the, the, the groups that settle Normandy are certainly not a majority across the entire territory, would only perhaps have been a majority in small pockets. But the entire inhabitants of the area do come to identify as Norman. So there, there is clearly a significant cultural mixing and a process of, of what uh, medieval historians often call ethnogenesis, you know, the creation of a, a kind of new ethnic identity that enables others to kind of opt into elements of this. But the key thing is that those who identify as Normans in the Middle Ages think that literally they all have come over from Scandinavia. So regardless of whether or not in kind of a modern sense of, you know, uh, a biology, whether or not they're literally descended from Scandinavians or not, they see themselves as a product of settlement in northern France. 
And I think this is really probably what puts them most apart from their neighbours, because quite quickly, the groups that have settled in Normandy make connections with the local population, both within and beyond Normandy, marry into local aristocratic families, start speaking French. The first Norman Duke is a chap called Rollo, which in Old Norse is Hrolfer, so he has a Scandinavian name, but already his son and heir is William, a good French name. So there seems to have been quite quick, in many respects, acculturation, um, so that certainly by the time we get to the Norman conquest of England, the Normans are, in terms of their speech, in terms of patterns of behaviour, very little different from any other northern French groups. At the same time, what they have that these other northern French groups don't have is this powerful origin legend that they've come over, won their territory by the sword, adapted to local culture. And I think this is something that encourages the kinds of bold efforts we see starting already in kind of the 1030s and 40s in southern Italy, in 1066, famously in England, to take foreign territories. This idea that, yes, of course, we can just jump in a ship, cross a sea uh, and conquer all before us is, I think, something that's born of an awareness that, in fact, we've done this before. And also feeds into some of the flexibility, perhaps, that we see as well with Norman identity as it moves abroad. It becomes something of a moving target because the Normans always were, in a sense, uh, colonizers, were always moving and adapting and, and recreating themselves. And they kind of continue to do this uh, uh, from their base in Normandy as they then extend outwards into uh, Britain and Ireland, but also into uh, uh, the Mediterranean. It's a really interesting combination of kind of the importance of a legend and identity while also being flexible and adaptable, um, which you, as I said, sort of trace throughout these extensions in a really compelling way. Um, and I do want to start, obviously, when we think about those expansions beyond Normandy with uh, the British Isles and uh, particularly kind of going back to your original sort of specialism, I suppose, of um, thinking about the pre-Norman conquest, because one of the arguments that you make in the book is that England was increasingly Norman before the Norman conquest. In fact, under Edward the Confessor, traditionally the last Anglo-Saxon monarch. So can you help us understand why and how England looked increasingly Norman even before the conquest? Yes. So as you note there, one of the things also when covering perhaps the more traditional bits of the Norman story that I want to do is is highlight some elements of that story that sometimes get left off and particularly elements that have been developed in recent scholarship in terms of that. And as you say, I think one of the key things to note here is that 1066 and the violent conquest of England certainly changes things and has a major impact on England and on the British Isles more generally. There's no way around that. But it isn't what creates Norman influence on England. It's not the starting point. And even without it, there would have been very substantial Norman influence. And this is because of two processes, one kind of, I think, unique to England and one more general one. And the general one is, this is a period in which we're seeing considerably closer contact um, between polities across Europe, and particularly across Western Europe, more dynastic intermarriage and so on, and increasingly the creation of a kind of shared European culture that previously didn't exist with shared cultural mores and so on. So there's a direction of travel which is seeing France, Germany, England, Italy, northern parts of Spain all coming into closer contact anyway. In the specific case of England and Normandy, and Normandy being a point of contact with France, this comes out of the fact that in 1002, um, under Viking pressure, the English monarch marries into the Norman ducal family. He marries Emma, um, uh, uh, who is uh, uh, of the Norman ducal family. And so there is a Norman princess in England, and it is their son, who is Edward the Confessor, who is then that uh, long-reigning monarch in England in the 1040s, 1050s, 1060s, that sees significant Norman influence come into England. And this is partly because he's simply half Norman through his mother, but it's also because there's been a major disruption uh, at the end of his father, Ethelred the Unready's reign, which has seen a Danish conquest of England by King Canute, um, and a number of years of a new kind of Anglo-Danish dynasty. And during this period, Edward the Confessor is in exile uh, uh, with his, amongst his relatives in Normandy. So when he becomes King of England in 1042, he's lived over half of his life in Normandy, and he's come to the English throne with the support of the Norman dukes. So the Normans are his friends. 
they are his political allies. And as monarch, he's coming in really as a foreign entity, although he's the son of a previous English king. He's not coming in with an existing network of support, and he relies very strongly on Norman favourites he's brought over with him. It's quite clear that he he wants to rule with them, and we can see signs of him trying to recreate in England things he knew from Normandy. So he famously starts rebuilding um, uh, Westminster Abbey, which becomes his final resting place, and doing so under Romanesque influence, i.e. using a new type of architecture that is popular in Normandy and mainland Europe. We also see castles starting to be built by a number of his new Francophone supporters. So we're starting to get a significant French element in, um, and, and primarily within that French category, Norman element, within the English aristocracy before 1066. And that is likely to continue if Edward the Confessor has a natural heir, um, uh, or if kind of political developments continue naturally. So we're already seeing a kind of a tide of growing influence. And what 1066 does, in a sense, what, what the violent conquest of England does, is it just turbocharges this. It means something that might have taken a century to happen, happens in a generation. Hmm. And one of the things that you point to that, um, as you said, turbocharges this is um, the sort of relationship, I suppose, or as you much more eloquently put it in the book, quote, English resistance and Norman settlement went hand in hand. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about kind of that turbocharging and relationship um, immediately after the conquest? Yeah, so the most striking thing of the Norman conquest of England that stands out apart from any other Norman conquests and most other conquests in European history is that it sees an almost complete change of the ruling elite. The most complete change of the ruling elite uh, uh, the British Isles has ever seen. Um, So almost all of the old aristocracy is removed from post, either killed or demoted, um, and is replaced with Normans. And we can see this most vividly in uh, uh, Doomsday Book, this wonderful compendium that um, towards the end of his life, William the Conqueror has compiled of his realm and allows us to trace this really, really very clearly and be very confident of how absolute the replacement is. But it's important that we don't kind of fall into that trap of teleology of assuming that was always what was going to happen with the Norman Conquest. So what's happened is that William has decided he wants the English throne. He claims to be the natural heir of Edward the Confessor, um, who was a relative of his because he was the, uh, a, himself a descendant of the Norman ducal family through his mother. So they're distant relatives. Uh, and on this basis, William already has potential claim to the English throne. And it's quite likely that at some point in his reign, Edward may have mooted the possibility of William's succession, particularly as a means of preventing the succession of his main political rivals, the Godwins. Um, when Edward dies... He probably is hoping to line up for the throne um, uh, uh, a young relative of his, Edgar the Atheling, but he's simply too young at the time. I think Edward's probably banking on or hoping to live a little bit longer. And what happens is Harold Godwinson, who Edward's almost certainly been trying to prevent succeeding to the throne, then claims the throne. And this kind of opens up this possibility for William to say that I'm Edward's natural heir. Now, why this matters for the nature of conquest uh, uh, and how it's enacted is it means that William casts the English as rebels to their natural lord, who should be him. They should have chosen him as king. Instead, they chose Harold. And this already provides a basis for dispossessing at least some of the native magnates and rewarding his Norman supporters, which he's going to have to do. They've come over at great personal risk to conquer England. They're going to want land and wealth. So some Norman settlement is definitely going to happen and a significant Norman element is is going to be introduced to the ruling elite. What isn't inevitable, though, is that it takes the form it later does of an over 90% replacement. That is down to the fact that William's conquest is resisted very strongly and violently from the start. And so the next five, six years after 1066, William is fighting tooth and nail. Almost every year he is facing a major rebellion. Only really one or two of these come close to toppling him. But it's this continual resistance that seems to harden his resolve because early rebels he treats actually relatively leniently. 
And we rapidly then start seeing this harden uh, as the rebellions continue. And so perhaps the most infamous case of this is the harrying of the North, where in response to a, a set of repeated, very severe rebellions in Northern England, he takes uh, uh, an extreme policy of trying to destroy local livelihoods uh, as far as he's able to do so. And this is very much an act of uh, uh, aggression towards the local populace, trying to break their will to resist. It's not a purely strategic uh, 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 thing. It's a show of force. So we start seeing this slow shift towards perhaps an initial policy of saying, I'm going to settle some Normans here and reward some of my followers, but leave open the possibility of leaving some Englishmen in post to a very hard line, hard nosed approach of we're going to extirpate the complete ruling elite, replace them with Normans and leave the English simply to till the fields. That is a pretty extreme um, example. And it was quite interesting, given obviously um, my familiarity with the um, English case, to see that the Norman conquest and other parts of Europe were actually less similar than that, at least in the sense of such um, extreme crackdown, really, and replacement. So I'd love to move to another one of those um, areas of Europe um, beyond the British Isles for now and um, ask you to help us understand how a Norman family came to control the majority of southern Italy. So the Norman conquest of southern Italy is something we tend to hear a lot less about, uh, as we've been saying in uh, the British Isles and I think in the Anglophone world in general. But it's probably the much more Norman, normal case of uh, Norman conquest than uh, the Norman conquest of England. And that is that it wasn't directed, at least from the start, by a single individual setting out to conquer uh, a complete region, but it kind of grew organically. So what happens is probably around the year 1000, we start seeing signs of some Norman groups being active as mercenaries in Italy. Our sources suggest they first come there as pilgrims, on their way to and from the Holy Land. This is quite plausible, not least since there's a major cult centre at Monte Gargano in southern Italy that is often used as a staging post to and from uh, the Holy Land. So you might stop there on your way to Jerusalem or indeed stop at Rome as well. So there's you could have a nice, nice little route of uh, going to Rome, another very holy city, going to Monte Gargano and then uh, going to the Holy Land or going to the Holy Land first and coming back via these centres. So it seems to have been initially pilgrimage to uh, uh, the Holy Land that's putting the Normans into contact with southern Italy. Um, And some of these groups are then employed as mercenaries. At least some of our sources suggest that, in fact, they they ask pilgrims on their way back, a group of pilgrims on their way back and say, don't worry that you don't have weapons, we'll give you the weapons. But could you please help us against these uh, local Saracen forces, these Muslim forces from Sicily that are giving us trouble? But they rapidly then establish a bit of a toehold there. Uh, And we start then seeing a regular presence of Norman groups being then employed as kind of permanent mercenaries uh, by local magnates there. And the important thing that allows them to do this and enables this is that Southern Italy is very divided politically. We have the so-called Lombard princes, um, who might be seen as the more native Italian tradition of rule. We have the Byzantine Empire, i.e. the uh, 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 a descendant of the old Eastern Roman Empire that controls significant parts of uh, southeastern Italy um, uh, uh, and bits of southern Italy. So Calabria and Apulia um, are in Byzantine hands. And then we have um, uh, an Islamic Amirate on Sicily itself. And so all of these groups are at various points in conflict with one another. And the Normans fight on all sides at various points, and they're able to play this off one another. And so that's how they initially go there, simply because they're being paid well to fight, and they rapidly earn a reputation for being good fighters. But opportunities then present themselves for them to, in fact, start fighting for themselves. And in the 1040s, we then see this shift. And this coincides with this one family coming to prominence as the leader of this group, who who seem to be chosen simply because they're amongst the most capable uh, 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 fighters they have. And that is the family of the um, uh, uh, Hautevilles. Um, uh, And it's ultimately Robert Giscard, the youngest of a set of brothers, who ends up being the, the most important and long-lasting leader who really turns what is a kind of makeshift mercenary force out for a quick dime into a political polity that controls most of southern Italy. Fascinating. Um, I think that that, in a lot of ways, um, is 
more complex than we would necessarily think. Um, and definitely this is an area where um, I think the book has some really cool details that listeners might want to go check out to um, really kind of dig into this complexity and the sort of tangled web that ends up with this particular family um, becoming so dominant. Um, and one of the things that this family and obviously the Normans in Italy get involved in, along with obviously many, many, many other groups, is the First Crusade. Um, and you argue in the book that the First Crusade in particular had some really heavy Norman influences and dimensions. Um, can you tell us a bit about kind of the Norman aspect of the First Crusade? Yeah, so there's, I think, two key Norman elements to the First Crusade. The first is the kind of perhaps obvious bit, which is simply that significant numbers of Normans go on the First Crusade, both Normans from Normandy. So the eldest son of William the Conqueror, um, uh, Robert Curthose, is one of the First Crusaders. Um, his half-brother, Otto of Bayeux, joins the Crusade, dies on his way out, but also joins. So it proves very popular in Normandy. It also proves very popular in southern Italy, where Bohemond, who is the son of Robert Guiscard, joined. So we have major Norman contingents from both southern Italy and from the Duchy of Normandy contributing. But perhaps the more lasting influence that you were hinting at in your question there, I think, is one in terms of modelling how the crusade is conceived and why people think it's a good idea or indeed even plausible idea to up sticks and go and fight in the Holy Land. And the key thing to note here is that if you're looking at this as a European magnate, it's clear that piety wanting to defend Christianity is crucial to understanding the First Crusade. But it's unlikely that people would join in large numbers if they thought they were going to be go, go over into the Middle East and be killed um, and stand no chance whatsoever at success. So the question is, why did these people think that there could be any chance of success at all? And why did indeed the Pope think this would be a plausible thing to do and to achieve. And here's where it's important to bear in mind the First Crusade's being called in 1095 and is setting up in 1096, i.e. just a generation after the Norman conquest of England and just about a generation or so after the Norman conquest of Southern Italy. And so if you are a Western European uh, 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 aristocrat weighing up whether or not you can just jump in a boat or march across land to a foreign land and conquer something, you have two very powerful models for, in fact, how that might be done and how, indeed, great rewards might be reaped for it, both material but also uh, in terms of fame um, and reputation. And this clearly is a factor in here because a number of the other most prominent crusaders are related by marriage to Normans either from southern Italy or from England, or both. So, for example, Stephen of Blois, probably the most prominent of the First Crusaders, is the son-in-law of William the Conqueror. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, Raymond from southern France. He is related to the Sicilian Norman family. So what we have when we start then mapping this out, um, and some recent scholarship by Lars Kier um, has done this really nicely, has shown actually the degree to which those who are participating who are not Norman were associated with Normans, knew personally, were related by marriage to groups who participated in those in one of those two, or both in some cases, of those dramatic Norman conquests of recent years. And he argues, I think very persuasively, that this is therefore providing a kind of model for how this might be achieved. Hmm. Both the practical elements um, and perhaps the sort of psychological and, um, as you said, sort of mental models in a lot of ways, which... I think are maybe harder to track archaeologically, but really quite important. So thank you for explaining that to us. Um, to continue our tour in some ways of Norman involvement in the Mediterranean, um, I was particularly interested and pleased that you included um, some of the attempts that were less successful for the Normans to conquer territory. Uh, because I think as a historian myself, often what doesn't happen or what doesn't work can still tell us quite a lot. So I was wondering if you can help us understand what we can learn um, about kind of this whole topic from looking at the less successful Norman conquests um, where there were attempts to conquer the Byzantine Empire and territories in Northern Africa. Yeah, so as you say, I think that it's really nice to try to include in our story the false starts, because they remind us, first of all, that actually, at least in the short term, there's Norman impact well beyond where there ends up being the lasting impact. But it also helps kind of 
place into perspective our view of the Norman conquest of England or southern Italy and not see these things as inevitable. And I think a particularly nice example there is uh, Byzantium, where we see kind of two approaches by various Norman groups to try to conquer the Byzantine Empire uh, that mimic in different ways uh, Norman expansion in southern Italy and in England. And so the first attempts there are that the Byzantine Empire has already been in contact with Normans in southern Italy, who it's fought both against but also employed, um, and rapidly becomes impressed with their skill as mercenaries. So we start seeing Norman groups employed in Constantinople starting in the middle years of the 11th century. Um, and we, we seem to have w- at least one, um, uh, but often more groups of Normans being employed at any time, pretty much from then on. Now, what's interesting there is they do something very much like what they do in southern Italy, is that at a certain point, groups rebel. And in fact, there's two major Norman rebellions, but the second one's the more successful one. And indeed, we get a Norman proto-state is set up in the heart of Asia Minor and exists for a good couple of years, raising taxes. Uh, They march on Constantinople, threaten its gates. They don't besiege it. They don't have quite enough forces for that. But clearly, what they seem to be doing is trying to set up their own state there. And had circumstances been a bit more amenable, had they just been a bit luckier, it's entirely plausible that developments there would have gone the way they did in southern Italy, and we would have ended up with uh, a, a Norman polity in what we now know as Turkey. Um, and that could have had very major consequences, because we now know that region is Turkey, because soon thereafter, it's actually conquered by Turkic groups, um, uh, who are another factor in play here. But they've got a similarly kind of fractured political uh, landscape there, where there's uh, Turkish incursions, the Byzantine Empire employing Normans, and the Normans are kind of able to then start uh, uh, looking out for their own interests. So I think that's a, a, a nice example of a kind of southern Italian model, but failed, and what could easily have happened in southern Italy. Um, Equally, we have attempts then from that southern Italian kingdom once that's become established by Robert Guiscard and indeed his son Bohemond. This is before Bohemond's gone on the First Crusade. But we have major attempts to attack the Adriatic, so going across from Italy over to uh, the Balkans and northern Greece. Um, And they seem to be doing this with an eye potentially to toppling the entire Byzantine Empire. They're doing this in the 1070s and 1080s, just shortly after these major Norman revolts, at a time when the Byzantine Empire is very weak, is looking like it's entering decline, perhaps terminal decline. And so they almost certainly are thinking, at least at the back of their minds, this would be the greatest prize at all. This is the direct you know, inheritor of the mantle of the Roman Empire of antiquity. But they almost all, certainly also have a kind of a... a, a an alternative, a backup plan if they're not able to achieve that much, which is, wouldn't it be great to take some territories just across the Adriatic Sea from us, which we could control relatively easily from southern Italy? In the end, those attempts also founder against the fact that the Byzantines are starting to consolidate now. Um, and then uh, uh, Robert Guiscard dies on the last of these expeditions as well, which uh, obviously complicates matters considerably. And then every all of the forces have to return to southern Italy uh, to settle the succession uh, and make sure everything's all right there. But again, this is, I think, a nice example of how a kind of outright conquest, the way, say, William the Conqueror was trying to attempt it, could potentially go wrong and lead to the Norman group simply retreating to their previous territory and being powerful there, but not having successfully extended their uh, influence and network the way they were hoping to do so. Mm. It is really helpful to look at this um, comparatively as you're taking us through it, because it then does make it clear kind of, ah, all right, so here's what they were going for. It didn't quite happen, but kind of this was, um, it gives us context for understanding what the goals were, um, which can be really hard if the goals are not achieved to understand what was happening. Um, So I'd like to leave the Mediterranean for a moment and go back to the British Isles. But as you said early on in the interview, um, the Normans are not just involved in England. Um, That might be what we often think of, but the book does talk about um, Wales and Ireland and Scotland. Um, And it's Scotland I'd like to ask you about um, first, because we have been talking primarily so far about conquest with some kind of obvious um, involvement of violence to various degrees throughout. And yet, when it comes to Scotland, you talk about how the Normans were involved in the adoption of new forms of government and bureaucracy, but more by invitation than violence. So can you tell us about the Norman involvement in Scotland? Yeah, so Scotland, I think, is another really interesting case, precisely because, as you are alluding to there, it provides a different model for Norman influence, one which is not at 
spear point or sword point, but one which also helps us understand what might have happened in England had it not been for 1066, had influence just slowly grown culturally. Because what happens in the aftermath of 1066 is England has become kind of rapidly um, uh, Normanified. Uh, the ruling elite has suddenly become Francophone and culturally speaking, Northern French. And the question, of course, is then what will happen to its neighbours and how do they respond to this threat? And the Kingdom of Scotland has existed um, uh, uh, in earlier periods, often known as the Kingdom of Alba, but for some time is probably the biggest player in Britain after the King of England, but is not normally the match of the King of England. So there's a situation where the Scottish king is sometimes under a degree of English influence, but there's no real prospect of serious conquest of Scotland or anything like that, and the conqueror doesn't change that either. But the question for a Scottish monarch is how do you then respond to the threat to your south? And the, the response seems to be to destabilise things where they can. They, they support the English rebels in various situations, but also to adopt those kind of cultural forms and particularly those military forms that might then help them defend themselves in future in future conflicts. And so what we start seeing is a Scottish royal dynasty that marries into the Anglo-Norman uh, uh, ruling uh, uh, dynasty as well. So there, there we see a marriage alliance formed between the two and increasingly adopting Norman cultural forms. So forms of knighthood and so on, building entourages with significant numbers of Francophone aristocrats. And this really comes into its own in the reign of David I. David has spent significant parts of his youth at the Anglo-Norman court. He's a good friend of the English monarch. And he's previously been Earl of Huntingdon in England, as well as Prince of Cumbria in Scotland. And so he spent a very, very significant amount of time there. His wife is Norman. His children have good uh, uh, Norman names. And so he's someone who, indeed, when he's initially operating as uh, uh, Duke of Huntingdon, probably is thinking that his future may lie in England rather than Scotland. He has an elder brother who's king in Scotland. There's no guarantee he's going to become Scottish king at all. When he then does, he brings up with him a set of Norman favourites, uh, and starts introducing them in significant numbers. There already have already been some of these Norman aristocrats in Scotland before, but the numbers increase really quite swiftly. And his very, very first act of state, at least surviving one, but probably was his very first one, is to grant land or confirm uh, a grant of land to a chap called Robert de Bruce, um, or as it sometimes is anglicised, Robert the Bruce, Robert the First the Bruce, who becomes the progenitor of a line that eventually become uh, very famously kings of Scotland in a kind of later context. But his very, very first act is to give lands to a Norman favourite, and that's witnessed by people who are almost all Norman themselves. And this is sort of pointing in terms of a direction of travel. Now, in Scotland, it's never the case, as in England, there's a conquest. So the native elite is not replaced wholesale. There certainly are tensions at times with the Norman incomers who are being favoured by many of these monarchs. Um, but what ends up happening is more or less a, a kind of Normanization by choice and on the terms of the Scottish monarchs that leads them to then have knights in their service, their own castles and so on, uh, without ever having been uh, uh, conquered by the English. And then assists them in later years when it does come to conflicts with the English crown. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's a really interesting um, insight or kind of piece that we might not think of so much about early Scottish history that does nevertheless have so many links, both with what's happening at the exact same period in England, um, but then, of course, as you mentioned with Robert the Bruce, sort of the, the trajectories um, and what happens later on, understanding them a little bit better. Um, so staying with the British Isles, but moving from the um, sort of le least violent aspect, perhaps, that we've discussed so far to perhaps the most violent, um, why was Anglo-Norman fighting in Ireland so much more violent um, than in Scotland or, as we've said, not particularly violent, or Wales, which was pretty intensely about conquest um, and taking over, and yet Ireland was even more so? Why? So I think I'd add a slight careful there. I'm not sure it was that much more violent than Wales, but it certainly was than Scotland or than England. And, and as you say, it does stand out rather. And I think the key point there is that we're dealing with 
Norman groups coming into these regions that do not share cultural assumptions with the local population and are aware of this and rapidly or certainly if they are not, rapidly become aware of this and adapt to it. Now, the key thing to note here is that Normans, wherever they're fighting, are violent and in many respects brutal, but there are very clear kind of rules of engagement within Norman society, and these are the same ones we see through most of France and Germany and Northern and Italy in these years. And that is that if you are fighting against fellow aristocrats, if you're of that aristocratic class, you aim not to kill fellow aristocrats. You aim to capture them and ransom them. Absolutely fair game to slaughter peasants and anyone of lower standing. They're, they're, they're fair game. But between nights, you have try to avoid doing this. And th- this comes ultimately from a sense of kind of esprit de corps that transcends local and national identities. And of course, there are very good class reason reasons for wanting to follow these kinds of policies, because in the long run, it's in everyone's interest, if you're a member of the ruling elite, to kind of stick to these rules. The important thing to note is those rules had not historically been the common ones anywhere in Britain or Ireland. So in the Anglo-Saxon period, the norm was not to ransom political uh, opponents if caught in battle, even if they were aristocratic. Um, The same was true in Wales, Scotland, um, and Ireland. So when the Normans come into these regions... They're used to ransoming one another, but if they're captured, they're likely to be slaughtered. And they're no fools. They're, 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 they know this, as I say, or if they don't, they, they learn it very, very fast. And so they then also adopt to these local patterns of behavior and offer no quarter to those who they're fighting against. And so it means there is a kind of a, a, an, a, an approach to fighting to the death that we don't otherwise normally see amongst the Normans. Now, we don't see this in as much detail in England, simply because the Norman conquest is much quicker. Although there is that spate of very important rebellions in the 1060s, it it dwindles out by the early 1070s. It's about a half decade. By contrast, fighting in Wales and Ireland goes on for hundreds of years. So we're talking about a much, much longer period, um, much more attritional, uh, and as a result, much more of this sort of behaviour. And we do have these famous accounts, which I suspect are where where your question's coming from, in terms of Ireland, where we have Norm groups, in fact, reflecting upon this, that famously after the Battle of Bagenbun, um, where one of the early groups has come over to Ireland, they've captured uh, a group of Irish prisoners. And our main account of this from Gerald of Wales, almost certainly fictionalised, but it it gets to the heart of a a, a real quandary they faced. Um, But he has a, a debate between two of the leaders where one says, look, we've won. Let's show that we're magnanimous. Offer them quarter. Look, they're just fighting for their lands. You know, come on, mate. Uh, No need to add insult to injury. We've won. It's over. And then the alternative side, then the hawks come in uh, and argue, no, no, no. They wouldn't have offered us any quarter. If we offer them quarter, all they'll do is go back and start fighting us again. They'll see this as a sign of weakness. You don't achieve anything by weakness, certainly by way of conquest. If we are going to let them free now, we may as well pack up our bags and go home. And as is ever the case in war, the hawks win out and they slaughter uh, the Irish they've captured. But this kind of model, I say, the the, the debate itself is almost certainly fictionalised, but it gets to the heart of something that the Normans were clearly aware of, which is we are not following our normal rules of engagement here. And we see this in other cases where, where they're capturing Irish leaders, they almost inevitably execute them, which was really not what they would do anywhere else. And it's not what we see, for example, in southern Italy. There, the Normans stick to their normal rules of engagement, um, uh, very much like they, they they practice them in northern France. So it certainly is a stark contrast there that also has then other kind of elements that come into it too. So we see particularly in Wales um, and Ireland uh, a real chauvinistic element to Norman conquest, which was present a little bit in England, but not to the same degree, where there's also an active denigration of local native culture uh, uh, society and so on, and the Normans are very much positioning themselves as a forces of civilization and the kind of discourses you'll read in writings from this period that really do smack of, you know, kind of 19th century imperialist literature. Hmm, very interesting. Um, and it comes sort of later on of some of the other things we've talked about. So I was quite interested to read kind of, okay, I see I, I see what the Normans are doing here. There's some variation and they're going, oh, hang on a second, Scotland's quite different. Oh, Ireland is a bit different too. This is really interesting. Um, So thank you for explaining that to us. Um, And I want to kind of 
end um, sort of our chronological tour in a way by going to a bit of Europe we've not talked at all about, but is a really interesting one. And I certainly was not expecting this to um, start off the book, certainly an area of Norman history I was not particularly aware of. Um, and you start the book off with it and then kind of come back to it at the end after explaining sort of the whole buildup and how we got there. So I was wondering if you could... Um, kind of pull a bunch of these threads together when we look at Frederick II, king of Germany in the early 13th century, who, um, as you show in the book, is in a lot of ways um, Norman. And yet it's a while after now the Vikings and Northmen and creation of Normandy where we started this off. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of Frederick II's Normanness um, and how it sort of showed itself um, in him and kind of what was the significance of him being considered Norman? Yes, absolutely. So just to provide a little bit of context for those who don't know Frederick II, Frederick II is one of the most important uh, rulers of Germany in of the Holy Roman Empire in the central Middle Ages, but is one who is very well known in the Germanophone world and quite well known in the Italian-speaking world, but not nearly as well known in the English-speaking world. He's the grandson of Frederick Barbarossa, who tends to be a bit better known, I think, um, and he's one of these figures who really leaves his mark on the early cent- 13th century, he kind of rules for much of the first kind of half of the 13th century. But the key thing is that it's all too easy to paint him as and to, uh, and scholarship, particularly up until about the 19, uh, uh, 80s and 90s, was all too happy to paint him as simply just another German emperor, that, you know, the Holy Roman emperors are German, he's the grandson of Frederick Barbarossa, is named after Frederick Barbarossa, it all kind of just fits together, and okay, he rules slightly more widely because he's inherited southern Italy and Sicily through his father, but he is still of this uh, line, and indeed we call him, in terms of dynastic name, we call him a Stauffer, not a Hauteville. But the important thing to note is actually his mother is a Hauteville of that same line of Robert Giscard. Um, and that's how he's built up this kingdom, is in fact we've had the, the royal lines of Germany and of Sicily have intermarried. And the Sicilian line has died out. And so Frederick has been in a position to inherit both. The key point, though, is that he in, is at that point of inheritance, his father dies, when he's extremely young, and he's only initially able to succeed to Sicily. And indeed, he's born while his father is conquering Sicily. And the upshot start of this is that although he's called Frederick, is given a, a, a good German name and is the descendant of a German emperor, he never goes to Germany till he rides north as a teenager in his later teens to take the throne. He's lived all of his life up to that point in southern Italy. He's grown up in Sicily. He speaks Sicilian uh, as his first language. He composes poetry in this. And so when he comes to become emperor in Germany, he's having to adapt to a very, very different political culture. And I think he only ever half does this. He does this partially by almost not engaging. He spends a number of years in Germany to establish his rule and then leaves Germany and almost never comes back. The rest of his reign, he only has one extended sojourn north of the Alps after having initially established himself there. And that is to deal with the rebellion of his son. So that is kind of one of his things is he's, he's really all along seeing himself as Sicilian and wants to rule out of Palermo, which is not the sort of thing that previous German emperors have done. And this is important to note this because the German emperors, although they haven't controlled southern Italy, have traditionally controlled northern Italy, uh, Lombardy. So they have had Italian holdings, but that's not kind of their home base traditionally. So this is really very, very different for what uh, uh, the, the empire is experiencing. And it's very much down to his Sicilian upbringing. But the other thing, that's different, is when he does then face what he feels is a degree of insubordination from his son, who he's set up as ruler in his stead in Germany. His response to this is to crack down on him very hard and on the rebellion, to remove him from post and to imprison him for the rest of his life. And that is something that is completely against the kind of uh, rules of conduct in Germany in this period. This is a period where royal power in Germany tends to be not strong, where rebellion is quite common. And above all, rebellion tends to be a a way of signaling dissent, Um, but normally with an eye to ultimately finding some kind of compromise. It's a way of just showing you're you're serious about this and you're really upset. In southern Italy and Sicily, historically, it's been very, very different indeed. There, the nature of the conquest and the nature of the way that the Hauteville's have had to establish their power and authority has meant that although they do follow the kind of Norman rules of engagement when it comes to offering quarter to those who 
um, uh, submit to them in battle, particularly political foes, they are very, very hard on any rebellion, uh, uh, and sometimes dramatically so. And this is a well, long-standing uh, uh, approach that they've taken in Sicily, and it seems to be because they're not originally of royal descent, they've kind of had to construct themselves uh, as distinct from the other leading magnates of uh, southern Italy, many of whom did not feel that they were qualitatively different. Um, so it's it's down to this kind of inheritance. But the key thing is that Frederick then employs this logic, uh, this very Sicilian Norman, distinctively Sicilian Nor- Norman logic, to political rebellion when his son rebels against him in Germany. And this is something that Germany's really not seen before and leaves a very lasting mark because he completely removes his son from uh, being king in his stead there, places his younger son in that post, and that that son, Henry, never goes on to become a German ruler. So it means that although Frederick's main base remained southern Italy and his influence on Normandy as a result, in a sense, was more peripheral, there still was a little bit of this uh, uh, Norman political culture also starting to make its uh, self-felt even north of the Alps. And uh, I think a nice uh, illustration of how the Normans not only achieved influence, uh, power and influence through planned conquest, through uh, cultural adaptation, through invitation as in Scotland, but also through dynastic marriage and a degree of accident. Mm. Very interesting um, and very much a great way to kind of tie a lot of the threads of the book together and the interview together. So thank you so much um, for explaining that to us and um, kind of making all of these very different examples all part of the same story um, and in such an accessible way. And again, for listeners, um, this is not an 800 page book. This is actually quite readable, um, despite the complexity and um, with all the benefit of great details as well. So before I let you go, um, I'd love for you, if possible, to share with us a little bit of um, anything you might be working on now or upcoming that you want to tell listeners a little bit about. So I'm actually at the point where having just finished a a couple of book projects, I'm now starting to just think seriously about what I I do want to do next. But one thing I'm mooting, and and you may have already uh, uh, been able to get a sense of this through, including Frederick II in the book, um, in a book on the Normans, is one of my other real passions and interests is the history of Germany in the 10th, 11th and 12th centuries, uh, a part of Europe that's hugely important and influential, but rarely gets much of a look in, in terms of more popular writing. So I'm thinking of ways that one might try to produce a kind of accessible uh, a book that would bring some of those kinds of stories to light. But precisely what form that's going to take uh, uh, hasn't been decided yet. Mm. Well, a very exciting place to be with any project, kind of thinking of all the possibilities. Um, and I think there would be quite a lot of people interested in learning about um, that period and place in history, um, particularly in such an accessible way as with this book that we've been discussing. So best of luck um, deciding what you want to do next and <laughs> working on it. Um, but while you are doing that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Empires of the Normans, Makers of Europe, Conquerors of Asia, out in 2022 from John Murray. Dr. Levi Roach, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>